Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here, back with another episode of the SBL podcast and today's guest won't need um, much introduction because most of you will know who he is. It is the amazing Adam Neely. Now Adam has been, well he's been running his YouTube channel for, man, I think as long as I've been running mine, um, but over the last couple of years he's really ramped it up and he's just creating some amazing content on there. If you haven't been to Adam Neely's YouTube channel, I really, really recommend that you do so because he is creating content that just, every time I watch one of his videos, it blows my mind. So check him, check his stuff out and we were lucky enough to partner with Adam and create an awesome course where he, he basically, he just sort of like goes into so many cool things. He goes into how polyrhythms can be used to create Chord, well, he builds up these huge chords using rhythm. He talks about quintuplet swing, which is something that I'm really interested in and have been having a ton of fun with over the last year, actually. I've been messing around with that. If you if you listen to the music of Jay Diller and you're, you know, thinking about sort of like drummers such as Chris Dave um, and over here, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Richard Spaven. You know, those guys have got that quintuplet field that's nailed down. It's something that I really think about. When I listen to them, I can feel hear that feel with um, with a lot of the grooves that they they play. And um, well, Adam goes into that in his course that is created with SBL. If you remember, you can get access to that right now. I recommend that you do so. If you are a member, we're having amazing feedback about that course. If you are not a member, go check it out. Just go to scottsbasslessons.com and you can grab a 14-day free trial there and uh, check out Adam's course along with all of the other courses that we've got and all our live seminars. If you don't know what Scott's Bass Lessons is, it's the ultimate online bass school for bass players just like you and it is a completely new opportunity for people around the world to study with the best bass educators on the planet from the comfort of their own home, not only in their own time but also in real time as well because we do live seminars as as well as our self-study courses. So go check it out, scottsbassessons.com and grab that 14-day free trial. Now I'm going to introduce... Nick is going to introduce Adam and they're going to be talking all about his course and what he's been up to over in New York. It's going to be a ton of fun. Here's Nick with Adam Neely. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SBL podcast. We've got Adam Neely with us today. Hey Adam. Hey, how's it going man? All good, all good. Technical problems aside, we're getting on just fine. But um, (laughs) yeah, we were just chatting about your new course in the SBL Academy, which is really what we want to talk about today, Decoding the Low End, which is just... um, a really interesting take on the bass guitar, modern bass players in general. Just tell us a bit about your thoughts behind it and how you came up with the the ideas that you cover in the course. Yeah, well, um, the course came about actually just in a matter of days because uh, originally Scott uh, asked me basically at the last second to put the course together, which was quite a struggle, I guess, for me. But it was a great challenge because you know I had been thinking about a lot of different things at the time. And, um, you know, I kind of, the thing I've been thinking about recently is, you know, the idea of inspiration, the idea of the magic of approaching something new for the first time. So when you approach bass guitar for the first time, or even just approach music for the first time, there's this sort of, uh, mystery behind it. And it's very exciting, that mystery. Um, it's very inspiring, that mystery, but, you know, when you start learning more about it and start learning how the pieces fit together, maybe that mystery fades a little bit. And a lot of people get uh, really turned off to the idea of learning about theory or learning about 
music because that mystery fades. But I think the the thing that everybody needs to know is that the more you learn, the more you know that there are things that you don't know. And so the circle of knowledge expands and there's more and more things out there for you to explore. Even if you might not have, know what those things are, there's always more to learn. There's always more to learn about the music that you're making. There's always more to learn about the instrument that you're playing. And so I've been just on the past couple of years, um, I've been like on this disco- like journey of discovery for myself and a lot of things uh, revolving around acoustics, also the fundamentals of music that, uh, you know, we never learn about. We never talk about it in music school. We never talk, it, uh, talk about it anywhere else. Basically, you know, how music works, how music comes together, how sound works. And that's very fundamental to the experience of actually listening to music and playing music. And so I wanted to give like a little taste of this with this course, Decoding the Low End, because I, you know, for me personally, all this stuff is so exciting. And I know um, when I share it with other people, and hopefully when they hear and see my excitement to share this stuff, uh, they'll also be inspired to do that. Because, you know, I think it's important to not only learn things, but also be inspired to learn more things uh, for your own self. And so that's kind of like the um, the overarching thesis, I guess, with the the course. Um, and that's definitely something that I, I try and think about a lot for myself. How did you come up with these ideas? Is it something that just you stumbled across, upon? <laughs> or is it like, I mean, do you get when I <clears throat> when I get into a dead end? Sometimes I look for inspiration from other players. Like I might go and put on a Marcus Miller CD or something like that. But you've come up, you've been inspired by a whole other angle. Yeah. Well. Um, I mean, it, it comes from a couple different things, honestly. A lot of it is, to be honest, reading Wikipedia a lot. Um, but the other thing is I come at music um, most of the time not as a bass player, most of the time as a composer. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I consider myself a bass player above all, all else. That is the instrument that has chosen me. That's the instrument that I feel most comfortable on. But I'm not approaching music as a bass player. And I think uh, when you try and approach music as different instrumentalists, just try and like listen to different people that aren't bass players. Um, and, you know, it, it won't be uh, what they're playing is not bass, obviously. Maybe you're going to like listen to... I don't know, Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello. It's a bass instrument. It's similar to bass. It's extremely expressive. And the way that Yo-Yo Ma approaches playing uh, his cello is very different than any other bass player or any bass player would. But you can learn a lot about melodic phrasing. You can learn a lot about how uh, an instrument sits within a mix, the feeling that he uh, gives when he shapes a certain line. And you can think, oh, I'm going to try and do the same thing on bass guitar maybe. Um, you know, the other reason why it might be cool to check out Yo-Yo Ma, I don't know why I picked Yo-Yo Ma, but he's <laughs> awesome. Uh, he's really into learning about different musical cultures. Uh, he did something called the Silk Road Project. And then he also, which was basically a lot of uh, music from China and Mongolia, and basically exploring how that sort of music would fit on his instrument, the cello. The um, He's also done things, I think he did like a Brazilian project, uh, so get, getting really into Brazilian music and how a cello works there. Um, and so what you can learn from that is you can learn how to approach the bass within genres that have nothing to do with bass guitar. Maybe you're going to uh, like bluegrass music. I mean, bass guitar is very rarely featured in bluegrass music, but maybe you check out um, you know, some bluegrass musicians and try and figure out how your voice as a bass player works in that context. So I'm always looking for to broaden context. I think that's a big important thing, big important idea. How do you fit what you do 
into somebody else's language. And the more that you learn other people's languages, other people's approaches to their instruments, other people's just historical and musical perspectives, the better a shot you have at broadening your own perspective on your instrument. How about some of the more scientific aspects then that aren't necessarily <clears throat> cultural or oh, yeah. from a, you know, a specific person? Um, How does yeah. that influence what you're doing? Um, okay, so the, the scientific stuff, that was definitely uh, came across a lot of like self-reflection mm-hmm. because um, I'm, I'm, stu- I'm studying from, really is the best term, but I'm reading this book called um, Harmonic Experience right now. And it, it talks about some of this same stuff. It's basically when you get to a certain point uh, when you've been playing music for a while, you always feel like you're missing something. Or at least I, I felt like I was missing something. I was missing some fundamental details about how music worked, how everything actually came together, how, you know, what music was versus, you know, is it, it just like notes on a page? Is it just like scales like that? It feels like very surface level at a certain point. Um, you know, even though it's really fun to get really technically advanced and say and analyze really advanced syncopations and uh, advanced like polyrhythms and stuff, that doesn't feel very uh, fundamental to what music actually is. And so I started like learning a little bit more about acoustics, like basically the study and the science of sound. And then that was a little bit too technical for me, honestly. I, I just started like reading, uh, reading some like again, Wikipedia articles, reading some stuff online. Um, there's this Arthur Bernard, uh, has this great book. I forget the name of it, but it's uh, a book about, I think uh, the fundamentals of musical acoustics or something. It's great. Um, a lot of the, the sciencey stuff isn't very musical though. That's the, that's the, like the flip side of it. It's, it's very sciencey. It's like the technical side, but it doesn't feel like very, like how we actually use, um, the harmonic series or how we actually, uh, use the ideas of amplitude and use the ideas of pitch and use the ideas, all these other things. So I, I kind of like, um, tried to start synthesizing this stuff. And a lot of it is just personal discovery. Some, a lot of this stuff is just like taking things from different areas. I guess in, in a way it's a, a good analogy for when you listen to other musicians and then try and synthesize their different styles. I'm listening to other people from different, like entire fields acoustics, uh, mathematics, science, and trying to synthesize that information into my field, which is music. I want to make music with this stuff. And, you know, uh, sometimes I get asked the question, like, what is the practical application of knowing that pitch is just another form of rhythm and blah, 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 blah. And it's a good question. And I, you know, the practical musical application of acoustics might not be immediately understood, immediately, um, just obvious to everybody, but the way I think about it is that a novelist does not need to know the structure and uh, nature of language. Uh, in other words, like they don't need to know like linguistics, like hardcore, like super, like you know all the gerunds and whatever. They don't need to know all that to write a good novel, but they would be very interested in it and they would like to know that stuff. And that stuff informs them on a deeper level and gives them a broader appreciation for what it is that they do. And by that fact, by that factor, they're then going to be more it, like engaged with writing and engaged with be, um, being a novelist. And that's what I like to think about here. I don't I might not apply the acoustics all the time, but I definitely get more excited about the music that I'm making now, knowing a little bit about what it actually is. Um 
yeah, so that's that's like kind of my journey in, into le- learning a little bit more about the acoustic side of things. That's really interesting, man. I, I was yeah. thinking the same thing. Like how I can understand totally how by broadening what you're listening to can impact how you might play a certain baseline or something. Mm-hmm. But it's the understanding of the science stuff that you just sort of absorb, and it's always I guess it's always there, but but not really there, like <laughs> yeah. immediately there. You know what I mean? Or it's obviously there. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the crazy thing about, you know, we're learning about our minds, how we actually, how we are approaching the sounds that are hitting our ears. Uh, we don't think about it, obviously. The same way that we don't really think about, you know, how color is processed by our eyes or mm-hmm. things like that. We don't ever think about that. It just happens. Um, the, you know, I know a little bit, um, I have some friends who are, um, brain scientists, neuroscientists, I had to think of the right word, brain scientists, um, and, you know, studying music and studying, uh, you know, the technology now with M- fMRI machines is pretty, pretty incredible what we can now do in terms of visualizing our brain while we're listening to music. And I have some friends who are working on a lot of this stuff, um, basically like <laughs> understanding how we understand music. And uh, it's it's quite exciting just learning learning all these things because it's not just like information that we learned beforehand and now we're like delivering rote now to generations of musicians and scientists or whatever. We're discovering new ways. Uh, we're discovering how we listen to music. It's a very exciting time in, in science. And, you know, as a musician, it's we often actually don't get a lot of that information. We sometimes get information after the fact, like Oliver Sacks wrote this book called Musicophilia, which is an extremely awesome book. I recommend everybody check this out. Musicophilia uh, is basically uh, Oliver Sacks, the great neuroscientist, talking about all these uh, neurological conditions surrounding music and his experience with working with musicians. But this book was written Oh, 10, 15 years ago before the current like giant leaps forward in understanding how our brain approaches, like, for example, improvisation versus playing music, uh, you know, like by, uh, you know, prepared music. Mm -hmm. There's some pretty radical different things that happen in the brain with like how signals get uh, switched between different cortices, I guess is the right word. I'm not. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. It sounds impressive, doesn't it? Cortices. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, it's exciting sometimes to be like, um, it's exciting to not know things and it's exciting to be in the process of discovering them. And I, again, uh, that's something that I, I kind of deal with a lot of the time for myself. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Just before we go on, uh, are there scientific applications then for music that you've discovered? Um, what's their take on it? What's their interest in music from the scientific well, point of view? Well, and that's this is the interesting thing. For my friends were originally uh, musicians. The, one friend in particular, his name is Tyreek Jackson. He's getting his doctorate at uh, uh, Columbia in New York. Um, he's a musician, and he he had the same bug I did, which was what 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 is music? What is this thing? Why am I so obsessed with this? And so he, instead of like making a YouTube channel like I did, he did something you know real with his life and got a <laughs> PhD. Um, so uh, in terms, yeah, I, I, that'd be an interesting question to ask him too, is like um, their preoccupation with it often is the same exact preoccupation we have. They just want to know what it is, why humans are so obsessed with this thing, was so obsessed with this, uh, with music as a cultural phenomenon, so obsessed with music as just a passion. Uh, why do we do it so much? Um, 
And, you know, there's a very strong social, from my understanding, there's a very strong social implication, meaning, you know, we use music to communicate with others. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there's so much left to learn about all this. But just knowing some of, you know, knowing some people, I, I know they approach it from the exact same sort of angle that we would like why do why do we do this we don't know yet we're obsessed with finding out um, because music is awesome <laughs> let's narrow that down then why the bass why did you pick the bass and why do you feel so connected to the bass oh yeah <laughs> so that one that one's that one's a little bit more of a uh not or like a reptilian instinct i just i just know um i play <laughs> yeah it's, there's no no scientific analysis or whatever why i want to play the bass it's just that's what i want to do um yeah, so I grew up playing piano. I grew up, um, yeah, grew up playing piano. Uh, I come from a fairly musical family. Um, my mom is a, a singer. She's a, actually, for a while there in the 80s and 90s, she was a performing uh, contemporary classical singer. So she got to work with like John Cage and Lori Lehman and all, all of these very avant-garde, far out there contemporary classical people. And um, so she big influence on me. Um, you know, my uncles are also musicians. So I came up in a musical uh, household, but I wasn't really, I didn't really like get super excited about it. It was just something that came, you know, was in the air for a while. So I was playing piano and then, you know, my dad had a guitar and he taught me some basic chords. And so I played some basic chords and then, you know, a, um, a, uh, band was starting in middle school and they were like, Hey, can you play bass? And I said, sure, I guess. And then that was it. And now I am a bass player. And, you know, I keep going, I keep going back to piano. I keep going back to guitar because they're great instruments for expressing harmony and great instruments for expressing things that I can't do easily on the bass. But there's something about the ability for me as a bass player to control energy within a band through the use of harmony, through the use of melody sometimes, and also especially through the use of rhythm. I can control everything from a very, very fundamental uh, sound space at the bottom of the ensemble, I love that power. And so I, I, that's my analytical understanding of it. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I definitely just like the ability to, um, to play bass. I just like bass. That's, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm very simple in that regard. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And man, a great bass player too. I have to say, man, I've been checking out Thank your you. own performances. Oh, just incredible. And it's so cool that you're doing some really kind of progressive stuff on a P bass as well. Really oh, yeah. That. Yeah, it's great. So tell us about um, your, your, yeah. the, the, um, the vids I've been watching with um, Sungazer, you and this drummer. Oh, yeah. So Sean Crowder is the drummer. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He, uh, we get together every so often to play with Sungazer, which is our duo project. Right. Sun, um, Sungazer is basically was born out of an experiment, which was uh, Sean, the drummer, he basically just is going to what he what we decided to do was he was just going to improvise a drum solo. He was going to come up with an idea, like a rhythmic idea, and improvise around it. So um, on some of the stuff, like there's a, a tune we call "Dream of Mahjong," which is based upon a septuplet subdivision of a two-four groove or a four-four groove, which it, it basically means he's playing seven notes really, really quickly in the span of what you would have 16th notes. So, uh, daka, 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 except like, daka, 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 daka. I can't, I can't, I can't even do it that fast, but he's just like powering through it. And I was like, Oh, that's cool, man. I can't play bass that fast, but you play drums that fast. So what, um, 
so then what we did was we like uh, he recorded it and then I took his drum information and I put it into Ableton Live and then I re- recorded around it. So basically anytime, and it was really fun working this way in the digital audio workstation, anytime I saw a drum hit, hit say like, I don't know, he did a fill or whatever, I could write in in like MIDI information, MIDI notes, exactly the shape of that fill and then it sounds like he's playing like this really tight sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, like predetermined sort of thing, but it's really, I just wrote around him. So we came up with this whole like workflow and we've recorded a bunch and we've also played a, a couple shows and we're looking to play a couple more shows too. Um, but it's basically around this idea, this back and forth, this really interesting, I think, workflow of that n- not too many people do. So that, that's the idea behind the project. <clears throat> it's great, man. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, man. What's your take on, I know you use a lot of, you mentioned that Ableton Live and MIDI and stuff like that. Um, what's your take on tone? On tone, yeah, yeah. Uh, tone is very personal, and I'm still working on mine. Um, yeah, tone is interesting because when uh, this is something again, you should always take from and think about from other other musicians mm-hmm. and other people who play music besides bass players, just to understanding their approach to tone. And when you look at like saxophone players or you know cellists, I keep going back to Yo Yo Ma. I don't know why. I think I was just listening to him earlier. Um, but let's say like John Coltrane on the saxophone. John Coltrane has a very particular tone. Some people don't like his tone. Um, some people find it not the most appealing, but I, I like it for what it is. It's very personal, and he uses his tone, be, he uses the sound of his instrument to create the music that he wants to make. Because if he had Ben Webster's tone, another great sax player, uh, he would never be able to do what John Coltrane does. So to put it in bass player terms, uh, if you had Victor Wooten's tone, um, you would never, you wouldn't be able to do the same sort of thing that Jocko did, uh, because you could, I guess. But when Victor Wooten plays Jocko lines, or if you had that Victor Wooten tone and you were playing Jocko lines, when you're playing like uh, the River People bass line, or if you're playing, you know, Come On, Come Over, um, it's not, it wouldn't sound right. It just there would be something fundamentally missing to the music that just would feel incorrect. And it wouldn't have any of the same emotional impact. It would definitely wouldn't have the same groove. And it would be just a completely different song. And yeah, so tone basically is the the fundamental building block of everything. If you don't have a, the tone that's appropriate for the sound that you're going for, it's not going to come together. So, you know, I'm still learning definitely this way on my instrument. Um, you know, I, I kind of just like my P bass. And so playing like progressive music on a P bass is always kind of like, what are you doing? Um, and it's, it's definitely an uphill battle, but you know, a big, big, um, like influence on what I try and do on my bass guitar is Tim LaFave because he has a P bass. He, he can play some pretty out there progressive music, maybe not in the exact same vein of what we're doing with Sungazer, but he can you know play the most in- intricate lines and most intricate syncopations and uh, approach bass from a fundamentally bass player perspective. He's not trying to be anybody but a bass player and just an awesome bass player, but his P bass tone really gets him to this place. I think that just feels awesome for the music that he's trying to make. And you know, I think that's uh, the the perspective of tone is like you can't imagine anybody else's tone being on that instrument in that player's hands and still having the music be the same. Like tone is very fundamental to the, the nature of the music. So, yeah. Do you think I, um, I forget who I was talking to about this, but bringing it back to, I know in your course, you talk a lot about harmonic signature. Of a mm-hmm. guitar. 
being very being what makes it what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, let's expand on that a little bit. I spoke. I think it was Michael Manning who spoke to me once about it. How he thought a lot about how an A on a violin, say, and an A on the piano is written as the same note, but they're really not. Um, and a lot of that is down to the tone or the harmonic content. Exactly. Yeah. Is, is that the same kind of thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, that that would be a, a hell of a scientific discovery or like enterprise trying to like analyze the harmonic signatures of different players tone that that would be pretty insane i I don't know anybody who's ever done anything like that because the amount of resources to actually do that would be quite quite significant crazy yeah yeah um you know most of the time we we react it's a more gut reaction sort of thing like this this is a mid-rangey burpy sort of like jazz bass tone versus this is like a very um active like very metallic sort of uh you know i don't know act yeah active pickup mm-hmm. tone for like metal or whatever um we just sort of have that instant reaction to it but like we haven't you know there hasn't been a lot of i maybe not yet there hasn't been a lot of uh harmonic analysis of different tones um you know that's interesting you bring that up like the michael Manring a is different depending on the instrument because that's you know fundamentally timbre the actual sound of an instrument comes down to its harmonic content which harmonics of the harmonic series are more active than others and mm-hmm. no, like nothing else it's basically volume if you if you want to like actually analyze what tone is it's volume of harmonics so in the harmonic series so you have basically the root is the bottom of the harmonic series then you have an octave above that then a fifth mm-hmm. Then uh, another octave above that. So those are the first tor- four tones of the harmonic series. Then you have a third above that. And then after that, so that's the fifth. Then you have our fifth note of the harmonic yeah. series. Then you have uh, another fifth above that, which is the sixth note of a harmonic series. Then you have, so basically it keeps going up. You keep getting different intervals and whatever. And the higher and higher you go, the closer the intervals come together until they're very, very small distances apart. And so when you're actually analyzing the harmonic a signature of a sound, whether it's a P bass or a J bass or a violin or a flute or a bird chirping or a gunshot or whatever, what you're doing is you're analyzing how many of those upper harmonics are present and in what volume and how they're changing in volume over time. So essentially, yeah, I guess tone is exactly that, just volume fluctuations in upper harmonics. And uh, it's it's interesting to think that you know we have we perceive tone as like color like something that's mm-hmm. colorful. There's shades and nuance, but all that shades and nuance, uh, all that really just is amplitude, volume. Um, it's a it's an interesting thing. It's another like sort of thing like psychoacoustic phenomenon, how we're perceiving what's out there in the real world, and it's coming into our heads, and then all of a sudden, it's something else. It's been transformed into like more than just the physical nature of it. <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna have to go and sit in a dark room for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> it's mind blowing stuff, isn't it, man? It's just—it's so interesting. Yeah, no, I—I I, this is the stuff I get off on, man. Yeah, this is yeah. the stuff I'm like, yes, give me more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about your YouTube channel? Sure. How and why did that all get started? And and I mean, you've got something like three hundred thousand subscribers now, right? I saw that ridiculous thing you did the other day. <laughs> The five-hour yeah. session playing the lick. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a stupid thing. Uh, yeah. yeah um, tell us about the channel. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I've had my channel since the beginning of YouTube, three months after the beginning of YouTube wow. in 2006. Yeah, it's been a second. 
Uh, I started it when I was in high school. So I just wanted to upload a video of me playing bass. And there's this new service called YouTube. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do a thing. So it was like my, one of my mom's, excuse me, um, my mom's like really crappy digital camera that just uh, horrible audio. But I was like, this is fun. So I, I posted that. And then over the next, I guess, eight to nine years, yeah, eight years, I guess, um, I just started uploading uploading like random lessons, random videos, um, you know, with no sort of plan whatsoever. But, you know, some of the ideas were, I think, pretty good. Just the production value was nil because I was just recording with my webcam. And, you know, it slowly was growing a little bit. And it was it was nice. It was nice. I had a couple thousand subscribers after maybe eight years. And then, um, you know, the YouTube started becoming huge. Just the total like number of views on uh, different people's channels, just like what people were using it for. And, uh, my girlfriend showed me this thing, which was basically your value, your, um, like what was a thing for valuating, like how much you're worth as a YouTube creator or whatever. And then I was, uh, like, Oh wait, I could actually make a career doing this because, you know, there's actually people who are able to actually do this. So, um, just as a, you know, I, I didn't have much work at the time, um, you know, in terms of like teaching or anything else. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to like create a, an idea, like a deadline for myself. I'm going to create another video, a new video every week. Just going to see what's going to happen. I'm going to create a video every week. And after a while, after like probably a year of doing this, this whole, whole thing started about two and a half years ago, it started growing and started snowballing until the, it was the point where it is now. And that's what I, uh, you know, whenever anybody asks, like, how do I start creating YouTube videos or how do I create like digital media in this new space? The big thing I say is like, well, you should always be creating something. It doesn't have to be amazing, but just because, uh, you are creating something, you will get better at it. If you are right. passionate about it, uh, don't ever be cynical with it. Cause you're going to get burnt out so fast. As long as you're passionate, as long as you're creating something regularly, you will get better and you will grow. But don't be too precious about things in the beginning. Just start, no matter, like, even if it's on your cell phone and just start, you know, recording yourself playing bass and uploading it regularly. Um, that is a way of growing your presence online. So that is kind of like the the trajectory of how the whole thing started. Now, why why I did why I do it? Why I enjoy doing it? Um, the main thing is that it's a new form of teaching and a new form of expressing ideas that I probably wouldn't be able to do so uh I wouldn't be able to dis to disseminate all the information that I want to mm -hmm. uh, the same way if I just was writing blog posts or um, maybe writing a book. Although I'm I'm working on a book right now or starting to work on a book, so eventually that's going to happen. Um, but you know that that whole thing of the uh, there's a term called the video essay, which is basically a way of putting together an argument, which is essentially what I do sometimes on my my uh, channel, putting together an argument, like say on Tartini tones, or say on the United States national anthem, or on uh, vaporwave, or on uh, like mashups, like all these like topics I've put together. Basically, I approach the idea from an essay essayist standpoint. I'm trying to argue something. That's kind of like the the idea with my YouTube channel is like I'm trying to always like make a point and disseminate information in a way that is uh, I wouldn't have been able to do beforehand. It's great. That's it's the thing. That's yeah. the thing. That's it. Go and check it out, guys. Um, Adam Ely on YouTube. It's great, and there's so much on there. And what I like about it is you've just got it really well balanced, where all the different kind of subject matter split up in a really interesting way. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, man. I was on there for ages earlier on today. 
Thank um, you, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. The lick. What's the lick? Tell us about it. Because <laughs> okay. I watched this thing where you played it for five hours. <laughs> ah, okay. So this, <laughs> this, uh, this video, and it, it's interesting. Okay, so the lick, I think it's interesting. Mm. Uh, there's, there's layers here. Let me, let me give you guys the I also, details. I also saw another video where you played it on a gig, but like you kept throwing it in on all these different tunes. <laughs> Okay, so here's here's the rundown of what this thing is. So the lick um, is this lick. It's ba- it's this like it goes do 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 do. That's what it is. It's just this little like thing that jazz improvisers just kind of like inadvertently throw into their um, into their like improvisations. And it wasn't really much of a thing. It's just something that occasionally people did. And then somebody put together this compilation of um, of like. Uh, like I'm going to say like about 50 different clips from like the past 50 years. I don't know, some, some ridiculous number of people just playing the lick over and over and over again. And then it became a little bit of a meme. And so it was like, oh, the jazz meme, that's fine. That's nice to have a meme of our own. And uh, so then, you know, it became a thing and it still is a thing for jazz musicians to throw this in on a, any gig. And then so if somebody plays it, somebody goes like, ah, I see what you did. You played the lick. Um, and so I I decided okay wouldn't it be funny if I literally just played the lick for five hours straight, <laughs> and just as like an exercise to see if, one if I could do it. Now there's 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 layers here because um, it's not particularly musical. I'm just like playing it. I'm stopping. I'm complaining. I'm doing whatever. But um, I'm doing it because uh, Mike Rugnetta of the Idea Channel, which is a now defunct unfortunately a YouTube channel, but it was a great channel describing pop culture and how uh, you know pop culture and philosophy, a lot of that stuff is a big inspiration for my YouTube channel. Um, he calls this sort of thing a technical meme where it's, it's not very interesting actually watching me do it for five hours. It's interesting. The idea that I did it for five hours, you're like, are you going to, I'm going to click on it. Cause did he actually do this for five hours? So that's what, that's the thought process behind it, is like, I wanted people just to see like, this is so stupid, but let me see him do it. Um, <laughs> So if anybody wants to see me do it for five hours straight, now there's there's actual musical uh, like analogs to this. This is not like just a random sort of thing, although it is kind of random. There's a piece by Eric Satie, who's a uh, turn of the century French composer called Vexations. And Vexations is a piece of music. It's about a minute long that Eric Satie tells you to basically repeat it 840 times. And when you repeat it 840 times, it depends on how slow you take this piece. The piece of music takes about 24 hours and the longest performance ever has been 35 hours straight. And people have done this. They've organized sessions where they literally play this piece for an hour straight or sorry, an hour, excuse me, a day straight. And, you know, they talk about like, you know, hallucinating because they're so like, out of it by the end of it. And like, just like hopped up on caffeine and just like these like crazy experiences just playing the same thing over and over and over again for a long period of time. So that was kind of the analog. I didn't really talk about it all that much to the lick playing the lick for five hours straight. Um, but yeah, there's, there's stuff I, I'm, I think about when I'm doing that sort of thing. It is kind of a publicity stunt, but it also was kind of like, uh, yeah, some other stuff. And, uh, yeah, the lick, by the way, guys, you should definitely, definitely look up this YouTube on the lick our YouTube video on the lick because it's really funny. And once you hear it once, you will hear it everywhere. Yeah. It's just, it's in the ether. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Adam, thanks so much, man, for hanging out. Um, guys, go and check no out Adam's channel. Go and watch him. If I find anyone who's sat and watched, should I watch you now for five hours? Would that no, be no. 
No, never. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be. I watch Adam play. Oh, God, that sounds terrible. Don't ever do that. You click the video, but just watch it for like 20 seconds and right. get the joke and then go away. <laughs> Adam, thank you, man. Go and check out Adam's course. Um, we're going to be catching up with Adam again in January. So, um, yeah, watch this space. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll, we'll be getting some more of your stuff in with SBL. And, um, yeah. Okay, guys, thanks again for listening to the SBL podcast. Huge thanks to Adam for hanging out with Nick and, you know, giving them the lowdown on the course and everything else that they talked about. It really is an honour that we've hooked up with Adam and made this happen for you guys. So thank you for all the amazing feedback that's been coming in for Adam's course. Um, We're actually going to New York very soon and we're going to be recording a brand new course with Adam. So there's going to be Uh, more Adam if Adam is doing it for you right now and he's certainly doing it for me so keep a look out for that and remember if you're not a member over at scottsbasslessons.com go check it out it's a a completely new opportunity for bass players just like you to study with the best educators bass educators on the planet via self-study courses but also in live interaction as well as you can hook up with the guys every single week Um, and ask them questions in real time. It really is mind-blowing what technology is affording us these days, and uh, I just wish, man, I wish it was around when I was a kid learning, uh, learning guitar and bass. Anyway, take it easy, guys, and I'll see you in the shed.